Coinbase is a platform for buying and selling digital currency, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin. Every payments company deals with fraud, but a cryptocurrency company has a harder job than most payments companies because Bitcoin transactions are anonymous and non-reversible. This is in contrast to a bank, which deals with a regulated, reversible transaction system. Soups Ranjan is the director of data science at Coinbase. In this episode, he walks through the challenges of preventing fraud, and he describes how machine learning and humans in the loop are used to deal with bad actors. From the data ingestion to the data engineering to the data science, this episode is a great overview of anti-fraud at Coinbase. It's a nice compliment to the presentation that we previously aired from Soups. This was a while ago, three or four days ago on Sunday, where we talked about the same anti-fraud stuff we'll talk about today, but in that episode it was a presentation that Soups gave from his own mouth. In this episode we go a little bit further. This is the second episode in our series of shows about Coinbase. Yesterday we discussed how Coinbase makes cryptocurrencies easier to work with, And tomorrow we're going to dive into the security infrastructure of Coinbase. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this series. We'd love to hear any other suggestions or feedback you have. You can send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I would love to hear from you. Supes Ranjan is the Director of Data Science at Coinbase. Supes, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jeff. As Director of Data Science at Coinbase, much of what you study is fraud. Describe some of the flavors of fraud that you see from attackers. Yeah, so the biggest fraud problem we are solving here is related to payment fraud, in which essentially attackers, they attempt to use a Bitcoin exchange such as ours as an ATM. So, yeah, an an attacker could purchase a whole bunch of uh, stolen credit cards online, or they could purchase, you know, stolen credentials for bank accounts. And uh, then they would come to Coinbase, they would essentially create a fake account and link that stolen credit card or the stolen bank account to this fake Coinbase account. And then they would attempt to purchase digital currencies using Coinbase. The digital currencies we support right now are Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin. Once they purchase that, then they essentially move it out of the Coinbase exchange to a private wallet that only they have access to. And then, you know, a few months uh, down the road, whenever the victim is taking a look at his or her bank statements or credit card statements, they would realize, what is this Coinbase entry in my statement? And then they would call up the bank or the credit card company and they will reverse the the transaction. Mm -hmm. So in these scenarios, the attacker takes off with the digital currencies they purchased, right? The victim, under some circumstances, we have to return the funds back to them, and Coinbase is essentially left holding the bag, mm-hmm. right? So now, you know, the payment fraud problem at a digital currency exchange such as Coinbase is, I would argue, one of the hardest payment fraud problems in the world right now because of the, the fundamental nature of, you know, digital currencies. So digital currencies such as Bitcoins are fungible, as in one Bitcoin is equivalent to another, Right and they are instantly transferable, right? So you can actually move it out of an exchange immediately, right? It's like digital cash. And then the third piece over here is that they're not reversible, 
right? So, you know, if I sent a transaction to someone, you know, I can't get that transaction reversed, you know, until I could essentially coerce that other person to mm-hmm. return it back to me. It's kind of like cash, right? Mm-hmm. So which makes, you know, a digital currency exchange, you know, a pretty attractive target for attackers. And I would argue that, you know, uh, compared to even other e-commerce merchants out there or payment processors out there, you know, because of the nature of the goods that we are selling, yeah. right? It's it's one of the, I would say, one of the most lucrative ways of, you know, yeah, so, so converting go, go dig- in, yeah, go converting fiat to digital. Because yeah. uh-huh. it's, it's quite interesting because yeah. it's not, this is not the exact same problem mm-hmm. that PayPal or Venmo or Stripe has to solve. It's made mm-hmm. more difficult by the nature of cryptocurrencies. Explain why that is. Right. One way of thinking about it would be that, you know, payment processes like uh, Stripe, Stripes of the world or PayPal as well in the same category. For them, the way, if I were a scammer, the way I would actually have to perpetrate payment fraud would be I would have to essentially create lots of customer accounts, right? Link stolen cards with each one of them, right? But then I have to purchase something in order to move the money out of those systems, right? So therefore, all these uh, payment processors essentially have a collusion type of a fraud. The the scammer would once is charging the the stolen credit cards via these customer accounts. They gonna actually charge it against another fake merchant account that they create on that same platform, mm-hmm. and then essentially they pool the funds by buying these fake goods. And then after that, they will move the the, the fiat mm. out of the merchant account. Mm. That's the payout mechanism. Right. right? So, so, sorry, you have to launder a pay, PayPal transaction through fake goods. Yeah. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. In some circles, we also just call it the bank drop okay. attack. And that creates another hurdle of complexity for the attacker that you could potentially stop in the PayPal scenario. Right. It creates another hurdle. It's a it's a different detection mechanism because mm-hmm. you're looking for collusion mm-hmm. more than anything, but it's also a little bit harder, you know, mm-hmm. for the the scammers to perpetrate fraud using merchants or payment processes like that because they have to essentially have a way to buy some fake goods, right? right. So they have to they have to go through a few other hurdles, right? Yeah. Whereas with digital currency exchanges, they don't really have to do that. <laughs> yeah. They they can actually you know be off with the digital currency instantaneously. And before we proceed any further, I just wanted to, you know, state this uh, uh, right at the beginning of the interview that Coinbase has, you know, been able to stay ahead of the scammers pretty well. And we consider, you know, the the fraud loss as one of our USPs or unique selling propositions, which differentiate us from other digital currency exchanges. We've been able to consistently keep it, you know, below our OKR metric. And, you know, if we were not able to keep it under control, then it could easily and quickly escalate to be, you know, a red line item Mm -hmm. against our profitability, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other caveat I wanted to add before we proceed too further down the interview is that majority of folks who are transacting on a digital currency exchange such as ours are actually engaging in good behavior, Mm -hmm. right? They are you know, either using digital currencies to purchase online goods or they are using it to, you know, transfer money instantaneously, you know, to their family or friends, etc. Right. And it's these small, very, very small percent of users, yeah. you know, who my team deals with. And that's, you know, I just wanted to highlight that it's a very small percent of users. Of and therefore, we should not 
you know, associate, you know, when I'm talking through the rest of this interview, we should not think about digital currency exchanges as only having right. this behavior. Right. right. It's not a black market yeah. filled with scummy people. Yeah. So, right. so now that we've illustrated the typical fraud problem, mm-hmm. let's start to talk about how you d- detect that fraud. So I think of Coinbase as an event stream of transactions where people are buying cryptocurrencies and selling cryptocurrencies. Can you describe how the the data that you're ingesting looks? And then we'll get into the data infrastructure and how you manage those different types of data. Sure, yeah. So as soon as you create an account on Coinbase, literally everything you do during the sign-up flow or everything that you do on the uh, on the site when you're doing a transaction is essentially fed in as a signal to our you know machine learning model, which assigns a risk score to every single user. And we use that risk score to determine how much purchase power the user has. So now, you know, our system, our risk-based assessment of how much a user is allowed to purchase, et cetera, is one piece of the puzzle over here. You know, our whole fraud program, it's comprised of, you know, humans, human analysts who are really, really skilled, right, as well as a machine learning system. And they both have to work together, right? You could not solve this problem by just asking our human analysts mm-hmm. to take a look at every single transaction because A, it wouldn't scale, right? And B, you know, it, it would be prone to human error once in a while. Mm-hmm. And likewise, you couldn't really just only use machine learning because, you know, one of the limitations of machine learning system in this case is that, you know, the label data that we are using in machine learning, it can come a little too late, Right. So let me give an example like we use in the cryptography cycles as well, right? Like, so suppose a scammer comes in, creates an account using a stolen credit card belonging to Alice, right? And then the second thing the scammer does, because we require every single account to do it, is they have to then upload an ID, right? Most accounts have to upload an ID. Mm-hmm. So let's say they upload an ID belonging to Bob, right? And then thirdly, all accounts on Coinbase have to provide a phone number in order to do a purchase uh, on Coinbase. So thirdly, let's say they link the phone number belonging to Carl, right? So they have mishmashed now identities belonging to three people, Alice, Bob, and Carl, Uh right? So now the real reason why machine learning works over here is that we're not going to take a look at the information from the credit card or from the bank statement linked by Alice. We're going to take a look at you know, extract information around the ID or, you know, if you did an SSN-based verification belonging to Bob. And then we're also going to take a look at the phone number and we're going to look up, you know, who is this phone number registered to, Mm -hmm. right? What is the name and address of that person? So now we bring all these pieces of information together and we will basically look for mismatches between names across these data sources, Mm -hmm. right? There's a few other data sources, for instance, you know, to create an account on Coinbase, you have to also provide an email address, right? So we will take that email address and also look up, you know, social media profiles related to that email address. Yeah. Right. And then again, extract names and addresses behind that social media profile. Uh-huh. Right. So, yeah. So the number one reason why machine learning works over here is because we are doing this name address mismatches across these data sources. Mm-hmm. Right. The question you could ask is, 
why even use machine learning? Why not just use a rules-based system over here, right? Why couldn't I just say, hey, if, you know, names across, uh, you know, if, if Alice, the name Alice doesn't match the name Bob, mm-hmm. then don't even allow that person to purchase on Coinbase. But then we would have way too many false positives, right? Mm-hmm. We would not be allowing a lot of good users from transacting on our platform because, I used to live in Houston. I traveled to California. I may have forgotten to update my information with Social Security. They may still think I live in Houston, right? So therefore, my address would be different across two data sources, right? My full name is really long, Supranamya Ranjan, right? But I also use my my short name in a lot of places, right? So if you just looked at my name mismatches, then that would be a false positive as well. Right, mm-hmm. so that's that's one of the reasons why we use machine learning because machine learning is better at making a judgment when there's you know a gray area, hmm. right? Okay. The second reason why machine learning works to detect fraud is because of the velocity-based signals, which is essentially based on the the broken window theory, right? So the broken window theory says that you know all these cameras they are constantly talking amongst each other. They are on online forums. They are sharing ideas. Yeah. Sometimes these cameras they even create tools that they sell. Yes. You know to each other because you know like the people who made money during the gold rush were the people who were selling the shovels, right? So they sell these tools where essentially they're te- they're, they're you know encoding all the tricks, right? Mm-hmm. So you know sooner or later when all scammers discover the latest trick, they're all gonna use it. Right. So therefore, velocity-based signals are really, really good at uh, helping catch fraud as well. And what what ends up happening is, you know, suppose all the scammers are using a remote desktop protocol, Windows remote desktop protocol, in order to pretend that they're coming from a particular machine. And, you know, we had a case where we saw that, you know, a particular screen resolution, 1364 by 768, the normal probability of it occurring is less than 0.1%. Like, normally people don't use it. Mm -hmm. But our admins, our human analysts, they were actually banning lots and lots of accounts which were using that screen resolution because they used the sixth sense and they were like, this something looks fishy over here. Mm. And then later on, this got picked up by a machine learning model because that particular Ah. screen resolution had a really, really high ban rate, Ah. right? And the real reason was that all these cameras, they were using Windows RDP protocol, which had a bug because of which the uh, the screen resolution was off by one pixel on each side. Mm-hmm. So the real screen resolution would have been 1366 by 768. Mm-hmm. Right. And your point here is that in this was a case where machine learning picked it up, but it was too late, basically. It was uh, later than you would have had if you didn't have the humans in the loop. If you didn't have humans in the loop, then yes, it would have been later. Right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. So humans are actually constantly banning accounts before chargebacks can roll in, right? right? Because chargebacks can occur in credit cards for up to six months and in ACH for up to two months, Mm. 60 days. So yeah, if you waited for the fact that these accounts, you know, Alice has to call and say that they are bad and therefore apply the label bad, Mm. right? Then that would be too late. Mm. Whereas if you have humans in the loop and they are constantly labeling accounts, which they are finding suspicious, then you can, you know, short circuit the the training process for machine learning. Mm Okay. We've given an overview of how this works in terms of the overall system, but I want to understand how it works in terms of the data infrastructure. So you've got data from a variety of sources that you need to aggregate and you need to probably need to buffer them somehow. I don't know if you're using Kafka or something where you're storing, you know, you're storing the data probably in different databases and you need to have data infrastructure that makes this accessible to the people that are building applications within Coinbase. 
Can you talk about how the data infrastructure looks? And what maybe what open source tools you're using, what AWS mm -hmm. tools you're using? Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. Yeah, a lot of what we do here is built on open source technology. So uh, I'll talk about both our data engineering pipeline and machine learning pipeline. Yes, perfect. Um, which one do you want me to start with? Start first? with data engineering. Data engineering, cool. So our data engineering pipeline, uh, so first of all, our production database is Mongo. For business intelligence purposes, we use Redshift, right, which is essentially PostgreSQL. Now we have data engineering pipeline, which essentially at the moment recreates the Redshift tables from scratch every single day, right? But as we've continued to grow and scale, you know, this process is not going to scale. Mm. So we are in the process of rewriting it, where we are now essentially tailing the op log or the operation log of mm -hmm. Mongo, which essentially has all the inserts, updates, deletes, etc. Yes. We tail that log and then in a streaming fashion, we then apply those updates to Redshift so uh -huh. that the BI, business intelligence tool, which in our case, we're using Looker on top of Redshift. So Looker, in a few months from now, we would be able to guarantee that you know the data in Looker or in Redshift is only, let's say, 15 minutes stale compared to the production database, mm -hmm. which is Mongo. Mm -hmm. So that is our data engineering pipeline. Yeah. What is so I've done a number of shows at this point where people are talking about Looker. I don't know what it does. Can you describe what Looker is? Yeah, sure. So think of Looker as Tableau, which is okay. uh, really, I know Tableau. Yeah, it's really popular. Tableau is really popular now. The the differences between Looker and Tableau are that Looker has essentially created another language which they call LookML using which people who don't even know SQL, they could essentially, you know, uh, very easily create dashboards, right? <clears throat> and Looker, yeah, so we uh, we have folks in our business operations and support compliance organization or, you know, the, the anti-fraud people. All of those, those folks are, you know, now essentially uh, Looker experts because, you know, they don't have to rely on a data analyst for all the queries, right? Mm -hmm. They're able to actually create simple dashboards very quickly on their own, mm -hmm. right? Looker also allows people to share a dashboard that they have created with each other, right? Another one, you know, I don't know if you or your listeners are familiar with IPython Notebook or Jupyter yeah. Hub Notebook. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, so Jupyter Hub, you know, allows you to have code along with charts, etc. right? Yeah. But that's for much more advanced users, right? Mm -hmm. And Looker allows you to have, you know, reusable dashboards where you can also go in and see what were the filters that were applied and how is this dashboard being generated. So yeah. you can actually, you know, if you have doubts about it, you can question it and mm -hmm. assert that whether it is, you know, doing the right thing as you want it to do yeah. as well. Right? So it might not be intuitive for people listening why you would want a production database that's in Mongo and then... You've got this event log. Every database has an event log of changes that happen to it for a variety of reasons. We've done shows about this. Why do you want different databases? Why do you want a Mongo database that's like the production database that gets updated and you have this Redshift database that's tailing it by 15 minutes or whatever it is, 15 seconds, I can't remember what you said. 15 minutes. 15 yeah. minutes, yeah, mm -hmm. that you're doing analytics on. Yep. Yeah, so the main reason is that uh, Mongo is NoSQL. Right, so it allows us to very quickly create. We use Ruby on Rails. So we very quickly create what we call models, right, which essentially are like classes in Java or C plus plus, right. 
So it allows us to create these models where, you know, we can very easily add a new, you know, feel mm-hmm. in without having to specify or change the schema, right? Mm-hmm. So it allows us to, you know, uh, make iterations very quickly. Now, you can't really use Mongo for cross-table joins, so to say, right? It's not going to scale, mm-hmm. right? And you can't even, therefore, you know, use it to do these heavy-duty, you know, queries, which, let's say, where we need to slice and dice, you know, how much of, let's say, in, in an accounting problem could be how much of Bitcoins moved into the platform and how much of Bitcoins moved out of the platform, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have to essentially tally up all these transactions and use FIFO life for accounting. All those things get harder to do in Mongo, whereas they're much more natural to do in Redshift, right? Mm-hmm. So for business intelligence purposes, you don't want to anyway stress your production databases, right? Mm-hmm. Because you'd rather have the production systems up and running mm-hmm. and when you want queries for BI purposes where you don't really have these strict SLA requirements as your users of the product have right right so you can actually have you know a second database which in this case is Redshift which allows us to run these complex long-running queries which where we don't really have to have a very strict SLA right, right. okay so I'd love to go in more detail on the data infrastructure but we should talk some about data science now so once you've got that, so is that is that Redshift database, is that the source of truth for, if you're doing data science for all transactions and all users and all everything, you can just query it for everything you need in Coinbase if you're a data scientist? Yeah, so is your question that what is the source of truth? The source of truth, if I'm a data scientist building something at Coinbase, am I typically querying that just that giant Redshift Database. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, exactly, yeah. So that all, yeah, so Redshift is basically the tool that our data analysts and data scientists are primarily interacting with. Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. okay, so give an, give an example of, or I guess describe in more detail what people build on top of that, because you describe at the beginning of this conversation the machine learning pipeline or, or kind of the different things that you're looking at as you're assigning a risk score to mm-hmm. use, because I guess... The main uh, the main objective of this data science pipeline is to assign metrics to users so that you're evaluating those users. So maybe, or you could tell me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So the machine learning pipeline is separate. So okay. the machine learning pipeline, at the moment, it is it is using the data engineering pipeline, but we are, we are gonna move away. Okay. And that's why in on, on a purely abstraction point of view, from a purely abstraction point of view, I think of them as separate. The machine learning pipeline, the intention is to, you know, use all the signals that we are interested in about our users, right? And take the label data that we have about users as in, is this user fraudulent or this user is not fraudulent? And then train a supervised machine learning algorithm, mm. right? At the moment, our machine learning pipeline relies on data engineering pipeline, which is we take the the data which is in Redshift mm-hmm. and build a model using another open source software called Wapal Wabbit. Yes. Which is essentially very fast rabbit spelled incorrectly and spelled very fast, right? <laughs> so Wapal Wabbit is, is is a really great tool. It allowed us to stand up our machine learning platform within two months with just myself and an intern. Mm. So now what we do is essentially we take the data which is in Redshift, create our data set using SQL queries, mm-hmm. 
and then use pandas, Python pandas data frames to massage the data. Mm. And then we have what we call in machine learning feature engineering, which is essentially we create lots of transforms, et cetera. You know, for instance, you can have a transform which says, what is the city of the user, right? If the city is Berkeley mm-hmm. or is the city San Francisco, et cetera, then you got to convert these categorical features, right, the f- into binary features. So you would encode it saying that, okay, city, Berkeley, you know, city colon Berkeley would have the value one mm-hmm. for whoever has the place of residence as Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And all of the cities like city colon San Francisco or city colon San Diego or city colon Palo Alto would be zero for that user, mm-hmm. right? So the a transform like that, or you know, other more complicated transforms, they're all encoded in Python, and then we provide this data to uh, Wapal Babbit, and we're using a stochastic gradient descent, which is uh, uh, another name for logistic regression, yes. to train a supervised boundary classifier. Yes. <clears throat> so one of the things I, I did a series of these interviews at Stripe mm-hmm. a while ago, and I talked to them about machine learning. One of the things they said was, you have to play with this knob of accepting some amount of transactions that you know are fraud because it helps you train to classify fraud mm-hmm. more quickly. Do you have that knob at Coinbase? We don't, actually. We've taken a very uh, different approach, and I can explain why, but let me first explain the approach. So our approach is, if we if we had a knob, or when we had a knob, we used to have a knob like that a year and a half, two years ago, mm-hmm. right? But then what that meant was, any user whose uh, machine-learned risk score was, let's say, greater than 0.8, right? We would say, hey, hey, we think you're bad. You can't purchase from Coinbase at all, right? But then that meant that those users never had a second chance to prove themselves innocent, mm-hmm. right? So we were losing good users as well, right? Mm-hmm. This is a cost to pay for false positives, right? So then what we did was we said, okay, based on your risk score, we will assign your purchase power and even if you're really, really risky, right, then we will allow you to purchase, let's say, at a very, very small amount, let's say $5 a week or something like that, right? Now, then you can think of it as, okay, we are essentially, if, if that user was truly a scammer, then we are paying to learn their behavior, yeah. right? $5 a week of a cost. And if that user was actually good, then we would observe that user over a long period of time and the machine learning system and the risk system will see yeah, this user never really charged back or this account never charged back for the next six months or a year, mm-hmm. right? So therefore, the risk score would evolve and then they would you know, transition into being a good user with decent mm-hmm. limits, right? So that has allowed us to you know, work around the problem of you know, uh, preventing false positives. Mm. Can we talk more about the idea of a risk score and I guess the mm-hmm. different metrics that are connected to the idea of a risk score? Sure, yeah. So risk score itself is just a continuous value between zero and one, okay. right? Where uh, highly risky users have a value as high as one and the least risky users have a value as low as zero. Mm-hmm. Now, is your question or is your intention to go in deeper into the machine learning metrics like area under the curve or log loss, et cetera, or you're driving towards a business metric? Whatever's interesting. Sure, yeah. So yeah, metrics is always very interesting, you know, uh, when it comes to machine learning. There's... On the business side, we measure fraud rate, right, as uh, our key business metric over here. Fraud rate, we define it as, you know, losses caused because of chargebacks as the numerator, and the denominator is our total purchase volume, Mm. right? So 
that's the fraud rate business metric. And the machine learned metric is of two kinds, area under the curve and log loss. So uh, let me explain that. So first of all, log loss is essentially measuring when you're doing a training, it's essentially measuring for all the users that your system thought were scammy or fraudsters, how high did the machine learning algorithm assign a risk score to them, right? And vice versa, as in for the users who are truly good, right, how low was the risk score assigned to those good users? Mm -hmm. As in, you know, how good is the system at giving bad users high scores and good users low scores, right? And in, in a lot of ways, log loss is actually, as a machine learning metric, going to be highly indicative of the fraud rate on the business side, mm -hmm. right? Because for two reasons, right? Again, if the machine learned metric was really good at assigning a high risk score to the bad guys, then my fraud rate, the numerator on the fraud rate, the loss would be low, mm -hmm. right? And therefore the fraud rate would be low. If my machine learned metric was really good at giving high limits to the good users, then my purchase volume on, in the denominator would be high, and therefore fraud rate would be low. Mm -hmm. Right, so that's why you know we we when we're training a machine learning model, we use log loss as our key metric mm -hmm. to me to evaluate its efficacy and efficiency. And if a model is doing well from a log loss perspective, then we promote it to be the production model. And then mm. afterwards, we again monitor how is this model doing in production via an A/B test. Mm. And Talk about that production in more detail. So, like, yeah. when you're releasing mm -hmm. the, the the process of releasing and A/B testing a machine learning model, because this is something that people who are building machine learning models in all domains could probably gain from hearing about. I mean, whether you're because mm -hmm. because you, that's what you always need to do. You always need to whenever you deploy your new model, you need to make sure it's actually an improvement over the the previous model. So, explain the deployment process for machine learning models. Yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's it's an important point that, you know, sometimes is not taught in academia, et cetera, right? right? And this is something that you can only learn. I don't think yeah. I heard the word deployment in undergrad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And I wish that we could actually uh, teach kids what it really means to deploy a machine learning model, right? However, or anything. With, yeah. <laughs> or Ruby on Rails application. <laughs> yeah, but that's why internships are there, right? And Coinbase right. has a great internship program as well, where I actually you know, really enjoy teaching my interns what it means to deploy models. A few things, you know, before I talk about deploying a model that I should first talk about. First, it can be literally very scary to deploy a model because you are literally then, you know, like the risk score for lots of people can yeah. change very quickly. Yeah. So we take lots of precautionary steps such that we are not going to move risk scores and thereby purchase limits of lots of users. Mm -hmm. right? But it is also very important to deploy a new model as we learn new behavior because we want to stay ahead of the, the fraudsters. Right? Mm -hmm. We want to quickly extrapolate, identify and extrapolate a new fraud pattern that we are seeing. Right? So therefore what we do is we would run a model in production and then we do a shadow deployment where we deploy a challenger model in shadow mode, the challenger model is not is, is going to score every single user, right? But it is we are not going to use the, the the score from the challenger model to assign limits or to assign the purchase power. We will only use the production model to do it. But then later on, we will essentially do sort of a call it a, you know a data exercise or call it a simulation of you know 
uh, all these users over, let's say, a period of time, a couple of weeks or a month, what was the score assigned by the production model? What was the score assigned by the challenger model? What does the distribution of scores look like for good users, right? And what does the distribution of scores look like for bad users? Mm-hmm. Also, what does the score distribution look like for whales, right? So we would we are very interested in making sure whales, as in you know, our high value users yes. who purchase a lot, their scores don't change. Yes. But sometimes models can make mistakes. So then, <clears throat> what we do is we would essentially present the the current production score and the challenger learned score to our analysts to look at and uh, for whales. And they would go, yeah, the this model is right, or that model is wrong, or this model is right, or that uh-huh. model is wrong. And they will go in and essentially manually override the scores wow. for those users or lock the scores for those users. And then next step, if you know machine learned metrics like log loss makes sense for challenger model, and also the distribution of scores for good and bad users, or for good users didn't change too much, for bad users changed a lot, right. that may, makes a lot of sense then to promote this product challenger model to be a production model. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, and and that model being deployed, what actually is does that mean? Is that like in a microservice or something? Like maybe you could talk about. I guess this would be a good place to talk about like the infrastructure and how requests are handled. Where in a request path is a machine learning model getting a, a request, some, some microservice request, or how is it being deployed and? You know, wh- where is that request coming from? You mean, where is the request coming from to deploy a new model? Well, or? so so a lot of people I've talked to, okay, you, you've you got your machine learning model running in a container somewhere, yeah. and when you have a question for the machine learning model, you make a request to that container. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so you mean, or, or is your question then about the scoring side? My question is more about when I'm deploying a machine learning model, what does that actually mean? What is where is the code I'm deploying? Is oh. it in a container? Is it in a yeah. EMI or AMI? Is it mm-hmm. you know yeah. what's the what's the unit of runtime? Yeah, at Coinbase we have a, a, a really great infrastructure team hmm. which has essentially codified our infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So in the sense that every single microservice that we run is integrated inside a Docker container mm-hmm. and then deployed in AWS. Okay. So when we deploy a new machine learning model, yeah, it's essentially changing the name of the model. So changing the, the pointer to the S3 path mm-hmm. where the new model is being hosted. Mm-hmm. So that's a config change. And then you hit deploy again. Okay. And then a new you know, Docker container is built. And then you know, it's, it's essentially launched in our AWS cloud. Mm-hmm. And what is the request path mm-hmm. for... Like when is a machine learning model being hit? Is it being hit every time a user makes a request to buy or sell Bitcoin? Oh yeah. So <clears throat> on the scoring side, throughout the user journey, we score a user. We rescore them. Right. You know, you sign up for an account. You complete our quick start flow, which is you know you provide us your email address, phone number, uh, link a bank account. Then immediately after that, you get a risk score. Uh huh. Right. And then. Afterwards, as you continue to purchase or you know uh, sell, etc., then we continue to rescore. Right mm-hmm. now, of course, there has to be a good balance over here. We can't be rescoring users too often either, because then the risk score, you know, or, or the limits could change quite often, and and our users don't really like the limits to change that often. Right. So we take lots of steps to make sure that we can correct for any you know drastic correct for what I would call hysteresis type behavior. Right, where like this, you know, 
entry, quick increases and quick decreases, quick increases and quick decreases in, mm. uh, in the risk score for a user. We, we, we prevent that hysteresis by essentially saying that only change a user's risk score, you know, if the new score is actually greater than the old score by a threshold. Yeah. Right. So that's a very simple way of preventing hysteresis like that. Uh-huh. And how often are you updating these mm-hmm. risk scores? Pretty often. So, you know, they are being computed mm-hmm. every time you do a buy okay. or a sell or you add a payment method or, you know, you add a new ID, mm-hmm. right? Or you go through any additional verifications. Mm-hmm. Now, it could be too frequent, and that's why we do the, the sort of a dampening right. Right, of to make sure that, you know, your scores don't change too often. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, what's the path for a change like that? So if I make... If I make a purchase on on Coinbase, mm-hmm. the Mongo database gets updated. Fifteen minutes later, the Redshift database is going to be updated. How is that going to propagate to my risk score? Oh no! So yeah, Redshift doesn't come in the path for okay. scoring. Yeah. Oh okay, because that'll be too late then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what we do at the moment is we basically use the production database of Mongo, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to to create a feature vector. And then we send it to uh, a microservice, mm-hmm. which then essentially does a join or a, uh, a dot product between the feature vector and the machine learned model file, which has the, the weights for each feature. Okay. So, right? So, therefore, <clears throat> we have, and this is the current architecture. I'm happy to talk about the, the one upcoming in future. In the current architecture, our feature generation is being done twice. Once, at scoring time, at runtime, when we want to score users, and for that we do it inside Mongo, right? Because production database is the is is the the only one which is gonna be you know is gonna have the least latency. Yeah. Right. For training, we're using Redshift, which has a big latency. Right? Okay. So therefore, feature generation oh, has to okay. done in Redshift as got well. Got it. Got it. Got Going it. forward, we are moving towards an architecture which should be more like a microservice, where only the data that we are interested in not this multi-terabyte database that we have. Only the data that we're interested in for a machine learning model generation purpose, we are going to send those data points to a database in a microservice. And then we would use a tool like, let's say, Apache Spark, or maybe we continue using Wapal Babbit to essentially do queries against this data store and generate a model. And then when we need to actually get a score for a user, instead of generating a feature vector in Mongo, and sending it to somewhere to get a score, right? We'll just have to send the user ID to this microservice mm. because this new microservice mm. will have the data store, which will be kept up to date with production, mm. right? And therefore, it can solve two problems with one, right? We, we will not have code duplication, and we will be able to do not only you know a model generation and you know experimenting with different models whenever we want, but also you know score using that same database, and the feature engineering code will be the same. Mm. When you take a user's model, so you've got you've got a machine learning model that's pre-computed, and if a user makes a request to purchase something, the Mongo database gets updated, and then the user's data gets uh, copied from the Mongo database into a feature vector, and then the feature vector gets the microservice that's that's doing the machine that hosts the machine learning model does something with that user feature vector in order to decide, okay, is this user, has this user, or I guess, what is that microservice doing? It's just applying a new risk score or it's determining 
to take an action on the user or something? What exactly is that? Is that oh, it's just giving a risk score. Giving risk, a new risk yeah. score. Yeah, because the risk score is essentially, yeah. you know, <clears throat> think of it as two, it's, it's a vector math, right? Yeah. I'm sending you a vector, which yeah. is a feature vector, which is, you know, Jeff lives in Japantown. Yep. So Jeff, so Japantown, city colon Japantown is one. Other things like, you know, like, which bank account did you sign up with? Bank account Wells Fargo, sure. that feature value is one, right? And the model configuration file, what it does is it says, okay, bank colon Wells Fargo, yeah. that has a coefficient of 0.5. Japan, city colon Japantown has yep. a coefficient of minus 0.5. So we then essentially are doing a dot product. Yep. Right? And then the, the result is essentially a score between zero and one. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And then, and then, okay, so once the new risk score is generated, the... That has a we already I guess we already discussed what is being done with the risk score, so I think we've kind of talked end to end about what are the different aspects of that go into a risk score creation and what is actually being done. Did I did do we miss anything about the overview of the or have, what what haven't we covered in terms of the data infrastructure and the and the risk score creation and kind of the end to end flow that a user is going to go through to be determined as being liable, likely to be fraud, fraudulent or not? I think we've got it covered when it comes to supervised machine learning. The other big piece that we haven't covered is the fact that, you know, supervised machine learning and human analysts are not, are just two pieces of a, you know, three-legged, two legs of a three-legged stool. Mm-hmm. The third important component here is unsupervised learning. Again, unsupervised learning is essentially solving the same problem that, you know, Label data, like which user is fraudulent or not, can take a long time to uh, to come back to us. So we we use unsupervised learning to sort of latch on to and extrapolate, you know, any any new pattern that we are seeing, mm-hmm. right? So there are three uh, pieces over here. The first one is anomaly detection, which is basically we we have baselines, monthly baselines for you know, what fraction of our user base is signing up with, let's say, Wells Fargo bank accounts? Or what fraction of our user base is signing up with uh, JP Morgan Chase credit cards? Or what fraction of user base is using a phone provider, uh, which is Verizon, right? And then any given week, we also look at, okay, what fraction of users are signing up with these things, right? So if in any given week, we see an anomalous behavior, mm-hmm. then compared to the monthly baseline, then we know that there's something odd. Maybe uh, scammers have, you know, purchased a stolen... A credential database of J.P. Morgan Chase cards, or you know, Bank of America, mm. or you know, stolen username passwords of Verizon accounts, right? So then we immediately present those users who have signed up in that week to our analysts, who then quickly go in and take a look at uh, them. Okay, good, bad, good, bad, etc. Mm. So they label them, right? So this unsupervised approach allows us to extrapolate any new pattern we are seeing, not knowing whether that pattern is good or bad, but mm-hmm. then we can present it to our analysts to label it further. And the second piece of the puzzle here is uh, related user detection. So there's, again, two pieces to that. So the the first one is deterministic, and the second one is probabilistic. So the deterministic one is basically if our analysts, they use the sixth sense, and they say this account is bad, and they ban it, then we quickly find other related accounts, which are very strongly related, like two accounts that share the same SSN or the same encrypted bank account number, right? Then it's very likely that these two bank accounts are controlled by the same individual, right? And therefore, we'll immediately apply the, you know, the ban label Mm -hmm. to the other related accounts, right? 
So the analyst has to only act on one, and then the system will kick off and take care of the others, right? Mm-hmm. Who are related? There's a probabilistic one where we're not going to take an action automatically, but when an analyst bans an account, then we present a list of accounts which are highly related, you know, in the uh, probabilistic sense to this account, so that they can look at them and take an action mm-hmm. further. The probabilistic one is essentially using cosine similarity. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Uh, we have, because of the supervised machine learning approach that we take, we have essentially an n-dimensional feature space. City could be one, you know, like a bank account and a phone provider could be the other two. And there's so many of them in this n-dimensional space. Every user is represented as a point. Mm-hmm. And then we look at, okay, all the other users, where do they stand compared to this point? Mm-hmm. And what is the, essentially the cosine similarity, you know, yep. between those two points, right? And therefore, we'll present those other related accounts to the analysts. Yep. The third one is rules-based system, where the rules, at least at the moment, we are not discovering them automatically, but we want to. You know, uh, at the moment, our analysts, they take a look at accounts, and if they use the sixth sense and they figure out, yeah, I see a pattern, I see a new fraud ring, that yeah, there's a fraud ring which is using JP Morgan Chase cards, and they're all signing up with Verizon phone numbers, right? Then they'll go, yeah, let me make a rule, right? All these accounts which match this uh, pattern, I'm going to say, you know, lock the risk score at a value of 80. Therefore, their purchase power would be, let's say, like $100 a week, right? Or they'll say, you know, these accounts which match this pattern, you know, all accounts which are coming from 1364 by 768 screen resolution, I'm going to, you know, throw some friction at them. Let me just apply or require an ID verification where they have to not only take a picture of their ID using the webcam, but they have to also take a picture of themselves as in the selfie holding the ID. Uh Yeah. So, a lot of these things then are like, you know, how much friction can you throw at the fraudsters such, such that their ROI goes down? Yeah. Right? And they go away, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, these three approaches essentially allow us to, you know, not have to wait for chargebacks to appear before we can catch a new pattern. Yeah. Okay, so let's zoom out a bit to close mm-hmm. off. You've worked in ad fraud pre- prevention as well, advertising fraud. We've done a lot of shows about advertising mm-hmm. fraud. I think you've worked in some other security areas. Describe how Coinbase, working in data science and fraud detection at Coinbase, compares to the other fields that you've worked in. Yeah, I would say this is uh, definitely one of the most intellectually satisfying jobs I've had Hmm. uh, in my career. So I've been here at Coinbase for two years now, and uh, my work career has been, when did I move to the beta? I moved to the beta in 2005, so yeah, 12 odd years, yeah. 12 even years. Before that, I <laughs> was in grad school, completed my PhD at Rice. So yeah, in these 12 years, I've worked on a variety of problems, cybersecurity for the first five years of my career, where essentially I built a, a system which could detect cyber threats, like denial of service attacks, mm-hmm. or you know, track botnets, or detect you know application layer DDoS attacks, which could affect protocol flooding at the voice over IP layer, let's say, or HTTP layer, etc. So that that was great. That was, uh, you know, the first five years of my life and then of my work life. And then the next five was around advertising ad tech, which mm-hmm. was, you know, like detect click fraud yes. in one phase of that second five year. And then another one was, yeah, I worked on real-time bidding yeah. at, at, at Yelp and Flurry. So yeah, but now, you know, the, the, there was always something which was missing, which was, which is what, you know, I can say uh, Coinbase has provided me, which is 
Coinbase has some very sophisticated and intelligent adversaries, mm. right? Right. The the fraudsters that we see are. We didn't get to talk about you know account takeover. So the scammers were trying I'm to. I'm planning to talk about with that that with uh, Philip. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So the account takeovers that we're seeing, etc. Right. So they are essentially using tricks that you know uh, I would say we get to see before the rest of the industry gets to see. Right. Like cell phone takeovers. Yeah. Like cell phone, like phone number porting or cell of SIM swap attacks. Right. So therefore, we are able to, you know, a see things before people read about them. Yeah. That makes it really fascinating. And the the <laughs> the intellectually satisfying part for me is that we are able to stay ahead of them because of you know the team we have over here and because of the the way that we can actually move very quickly over here and build uh, tools and uh, techniques to proactively prevent things from blowing up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, Soups, thanks for coming to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me here. Great. Cheers. All right.